0: That's a great song. It's when uh, we're getting ready. We want to be able to sing that on Easter Sunday because it holds a lot of promise, a lot of truth in it. It's a celebration of, of what Christ has already experienced in his resurrection, and it's our hope, it's our faith in what we will experience because of him. We too will be raised. If God did it once, he can do it again, this time with us. And it's really a song that sings about faith, which is our topic this morning. Back in the days of World War II, the British military, uh, they were looking for a way to um, reinforce and and to increase the the survivability of their bombers. They are having a lot of issues losing planes in the battle. And so they brought in a famed statistician, Abraham Wald, to take a look at all of these bombers that returned from the field and to advise them on how to reinforce, how to armor these planes. Now, that name, Abraham Wald, it may not mean a whole lot to us, but he's like the Mick Jagger of mathematicians. He's like a rock star in that field. And so they had every reason to trust his recommendations. However, they also had some unconscious or subconscious expectations of what those recommendations would be. So when Abraham turned in his report, and it didn't meet those expectations, they were kind of thrown for a loop, like, can we really trust this guy? You see, after looking at every bullet hole and every damage uh, section on those planes, he submitted his report and his recommendation. It was actually the instruction to reinforce and armor all of the undamaged portions of the plane. And when the military looked at that, they said, this has got to be wrong. I mean, look, look at this tail section. Look at all these bullet holes. Look at all this damage. I mean, it looks like Swiss cheese. Surely that's the part that we need to reinforce, right? But Abraham explained. He said, these are all the planes that came back from the battlefield. That means that all of this damage that you see wasn't consequential as far as the plane's ability to fly and do its job. All the parts that were undamaged then seem to be the really important parts. You want to make sure those are okay. So that's why you want to double down and reinforce those sections. Like we said, they trusted him, but when his recommendations didn't meet their subconscious expectations, it kind of made their faith waver a little bit. And that's something I think you and I can resonate with in our own lives. We started a series last week, it's called Defining Faith. And in this series, we're really just asking the question, what is faith? It's this hugely important concept, not just in our religious lives, but in in every aspect of life. And we're looking at a biblical definition of, of faith. What is it exactly? And our hope is that by the end of this series, we will ourselves become people defined by that kind of faith. We looked at faith last week through the lens of a man named Abraham. And we came to this basic working definition that faith is trusting God enough to obey, but also enough to believe. That's a real good working definition. As we continue looking at his story today, we're going to hone and further define or refine that definition a little bit. Because we can trust God and we can trust that he has good intentions for our lives. We can even trust enough to believe him and to follow him. But when his ways and his works don't meet our subconscious expectations, well, sometimes our faith can start to waver just like the British military. Thankfully, Abraham has some lessons to teach us when we experience seasons like that as his story unfolds in Genesis chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to open those up to Genesis chapter 13. If you don't have your Bibles, don't worry about it. You can follow along on the screen behind, or you can download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device. Tap the Sunday button that's in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen, and you'll find sermon notes along with all of our passages pulled up, ready for you to engage with so you don't have to like flip around a whole lot. Like we said, Abraham teaches a lot of valuable lessons on faith. The, the Old and New Testament both hold him up as kind of this example of what faith in God is supposed to look like. It makes sense we would spend some time looking at him. And one of those important lessons comes to us in chapter 13, and it teaches us that faith— It's not just trusting in God, it's also trusting God even when the doors begin to close in your life. You take a look at at Abraham's story and we see this. Chapter 12, a little recap if you couldn't be with us last week. God calls to Abraham. He says, Abraham, you're 75 years old. You don't have any children. Your wife is barren, but I want you to trust me. I want you to leave your country I want you to leave your people, your extended family, your your nation, and I want you to leave your social and economic welfare behind you and trust me enough to believe I'm going to give you a land of your own and I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make you into an extended family and I'm going to bless you and give you social and economic welfare beyond what you could imagine or accomplish yourself. It's a lofty promise, but Abraham had faith. He trusted enough to obey God and believe him, and so he set out, and he took with him his wife, Sarai, and his nephew, Lot. Now, we didn't talk about Lot a whole lot last week, but he's kind of an important figure in this leg of the journey. You see, Lot had a a father who had passed away. We don't know at what age or what time, but, but he kind of had this void in his life. Abraham, his uncle, Didn't have any children of his own, so he kind of had this void in his life. And it's not surprising, these two found each other and became, as Abraham describes it in chapter 13, close relatives. They had a very significant and and important bond. They were close, almost like this sort of pseudo-father-son relationship. In fact, it wouldn't be surprising if given the ancient culture and, and how it tended to operate, if Lot stood to be the heir of Abraham's estate after he passed away. That's how close these two were. So it makes sense then, if Abraham's 75 years old, no children, his wife is barren, and yet God says, I'm going to make you into a nation of people, he might look to Lot and say, well, maybe God's going to work through him. I mean, maybe God will do something miraculous, but at least I got a really solid backup plan here in Lot. And it kind of looks like things might start to go that way as Abraham's life continues. We find that Abraham, through the blessing of God, amasses a large number of sheep and herds. He gathers a number of people that work for him, that serve him. And Lot also experiences the blessing of God. He amasses a great number of sheep and herds. He amasses a number of people that work for him. They're both being immensely blessed, just like God said. So maybe Lot really is going to be the one through whom God works. Until we come to an issue. Chapter 13, verse 5. This is what we read. Now, Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they weren't able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Perizzites uh, were also living in land at the time. So we have an issue here. These guys are too blessed. They have. Too much wealth, too much prosperity, that the land just physically can't support all of the animals and all of the herders, and so there's some friction developing between the households of these two close relatives. And so Abraham, seeing the writing on the wall, he has the wisdom to say, Lot, I don't think we can continue this journey together. I think for the sake of our relationship and our family, we need to split. But I'll tell you what, I want to give you first dibs. You pick where you want to go, and I'll go the opposite direction so that we never come to blows or quarrels again. If you head east, I'll go west. If you head north, I'll go south. So Lot begins to look around, and he begins to survey the lands around them. And he looks to the west, the land of Canaan. This was the land that God had promised to give Abraham. This is the land that was going to be blessed by God. God's favor was upon it. But then he looks to the east and this is what we read as the story continues in verse 11. It says, So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan Valley, set out toward, and he set out toward the east. The two men parted company, and Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So, Lot looks around, he sees in the west, the land of Canaan, that God has blessed, that his favor is on. But then he looks to the east, he sees all this green pasture, he sees this bumping city of Sodom with its fast-paced urban life and the luxuries that it holds, and he says, I want that one. I pick that. And with that, the two men part ways. Abraham goes west, Lot goes east, and as he heads off over the horizon, so goes Abraham's backup plan. And that door begins to close. And now Abraham is 75 years old, no child, there and wife, and now no favored nephew through whom God might work and and fulfill his promises. If God's going to keep his word, if he really is going to make Abraham into a great nation of people, then it really is going to be all up to God to produce a child. And now Abraham's faith has to take on a new dimension. It has to take on a faith that trusts God even when these promising doors begin to close. And that's something I think you and I can resonate with in our own lives. Because we've had those moments too where promising opportunities start to disappear. We believe that that God has something good in store for our lives. That He is for us and not against us. And we have reason to believe that. I mean, He sent His Son Jesus into this world to die on a cross to atone for our sins, to raise us back to life, that we could spend eternity with God as his children. That's a really, really good and really costly gesture on God's part, and I don't think that he would do that if he intended for our lives to be miserable. He intends good for us. He has good intentions. And sometimes we assume, well, if God intends good for my life, it must look like this. And then when it doesn't materialize or happen... Maybe we think, well, maybe God's good in my life is going to look like this and go through this door. And when that starts to close, we can kind of take a step back. We might start to reel a little bit. Maybe we even start to question, God, do do you really have something good in store for my life? Because all these good things, really seemingly good things, are just, these doors are closing. And I'm I'm not real sure. Our faith can start to waver. Maybe you, uh, you experience this in a relational context. God doesn't call everyone to marriage, but, but to those he does, maybe you've pursued someone and, and you've met a, a girl and you thought, man, she's great, she's the one, she, she checks all the boxes, she's perfect, surely she's the one I'm going to wind up with. Or maybe you met a guy and you said, he's everything I'm looking for, he's dependable, he's true, he's faithful, and you thought, this is the guy, I know it. Only for those relationships to end, and they not be the one you thought they were. And sometimes when those doors close, we can take a step back and think, God, are you you sure you have my best interests in mind? Because those options seemed really promising and really good. Or maybe you experienced this in a professional context, and and you had this interview for a job, and you felt like it just went so well. You were so sure of it. Or you were hired for a new position that the company created, and you thought, man, I'm going to be so fulfilled. I'm so excited to start this new job, only for the interview to not have gone as well as you thought. Or for that new position to really it wasn't producing what the company thought and ended it and, and you were let go. And as those doors start to close in our lives, again, we can say, God, I know you have something good in store for me, but it just it doesn't really feel like it in this moment. Because all of these good options are starting to disappear, what gives? It's in that moment that our faith needs to take on a new dimension and a new depth one that really does trust God enough to obey and believe, not based on the circumstances or the situation, but based upon his character and who he is. I remember a time in my life I was, uh, I was interviewing for a church in central Illinois, uh, and it, it seemed like a good fit, you know. It was a good church, good people, it was a nice little town. Geographically, it was a good place for that, that time in our lives. And so I, I got kind of far into the interview process, and And I don't know if you know anything about church hirings. They're never fast. I mean, it's not unusual for it to take three, four months. I think here it took six or eight months was the process. It's a slow process. And in that time, you know, as the candidate, you're thinking about the church, and you're thinking about the community, and what's it going to be like to live there, and how can I serve best? How can I hit the ground running? So you're digging into demographics and needs, and you're looking at houses. You're getting really attached to the idea of living and serving in this context. And then when that door closes man, it's, it's disappointing, a little depressing even. And you say, God, I know you have my best interests at heart. I know you call me to something good, but it's kind of hard to believe that when the doors start to close. That's when our faith has to take on this new dimension that trusts not in the circumstances, but in who God is and who he has consistently demonstrated himself to be. He is good. He does have our best interests at heart. And sometimes... We don't recognize that at first, but the doors that he closes, oftentimes those are the doors that need to be closed. It may seem promising, but he sees what we don't. I know we just sang that song, do you see what I see? We don't see what he sees. We don't know what he knows. Lot is a fantastic example of this. When it talks about Lot choosing to go to the east towards the city of Sodom, That's more than just a comment on his choice and on his geographic location. That's a comment on his character. I mean, you think about the circumstance. He looked to the west. He looked at the land that God had promised to bless, the land that his favor was upon. And he still chose the lands in the east with the city of Sodom. And we are told they sinned greatly against the Lord. It wasn't a secret what was going down in Sodom. This had a reputation. And he still chose that. And if you keep reading the story of Lot into the next chapter, you learn he didn't just pitch his tent near the city of Sodom, he actually moves into the city of Sodom. More and more he gets sucked into this life and this way that is contrary to who God had called Abraham to be and the road he called Abraham to walk. Lot, turns out, was not a very good choice. Abraham maybe didn't see it at the time, but he was not going to be the one through whom Abraham was most blessed. He was not going to be the one through whom God was most glorified. Lot, turns out, was a door that needed to be closed. And in our lives, sometimes it takes some faith, some trust when those doors close to continue to believe God really does have our best interests at heart. I may not see it in the immediate, but because he is good and because he is who he is, I trust that this is a door he saw that needed to be shut because there's something better coming down the road to his credit abraham had that kind of faith he trusted god even when the door started to close if we were to keep reading this story we'd read that abraham went to the west west to the land of canaan just like he said a lot went east i'll go west and when he got there he built an altar to the lord and he began to worship him there that's also a comment on Abraham's character, not just his activities and his geographic location. This is somebody who had faith that even when the door closes, God's going to keep his word. Now, there's another lesson that Abraham has to learn about faith. This time, he kind of learns it the hard way. He continues to trust God when the doors close, but unfortunately, he kind of stumbles in one aspect. He doesn't trust God even when it goes against the grain, and that's something that you and I have to learn about faith as well. And It's difficult, but trusting God means following him trusting in his ways even when it goes against the grain or against the cultural expectations of our day. If the story continues, uh, Abraham it goes about 10 years, still no child, and we read this in Genesis chapter 16 verse 1. It says now Sarai, Abraham's wife had borne him no children. So again, he's 85 at this point. Doors are closing, clocks ticking, he's starting to feel some stress. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And so she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. I'm sure he did. (laughs) So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Now, this whole thing probably sounds really weird to us today, so we need to explain it, unpack it a little bit. So in this ancient culture, in this particular region of the world, we call it the ancient Near East, slaves and servants were seen in many ways as extensions of their masters. So Hagar, being Sarai's slave, she was really kind of an extension of her person. Therefore, she was the ideal surrogate mother. If Hagar had a son, it would be as if Sarai also had this son. Now, we read that and we say, well, was that a common thing? It wasn't. No. It wasn't because it was morally looked down upon. It's because most people didn't have the financial means to support multiple people in a household. But Abraham is not most people. He is exceedingly blessed. He's very prosperous because of the favor of the Lord. So he does have the means to support multiple people, and so if the general culture were to see this, it wouldn't be the kind of thing that they looked down upon or even raised an eyebrow at. Really, it was a really uh, common or really uh, common sense solution to the problem. If your wife can't have a kid, but you have this servant, we'll just have a, a surrogate mother in in the servant girl. Have your son that way. It was sort of a cultural solution to a problem. And Abraham, again, 86 or 85 years old wife hasn't had any children, she's 75 years old at this point, and yet God keeps saying, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you into a great nation, I'm going to give you a son, Abraham starts thinking, well, you know, the world solves the problem in this way, so maybe that's how God's going to solve the problem too, through this common everyday cultural expectation of surrogacy through the slave. That wasn't the case, but that's how Abraham starts to think but we really can't get too hard on him because we do that same thing sometimes. You know, when the doors start to close in our lives and the path forward seems a little more narrow and maybe we feel some pressure, like the clock's ticking down or things aren't really playing out the way we expected them to, we can maybe start to assume that, you know, the world does things this way. They solve their problems this way. Maybe that's how God's gonna solve the problem too. Maybe he's gonna go by the same codes and the same standards and the same practices as everybody else in the world. That's oftentimes not the case. though. We take a look at what happens when we begin to pursue the ways of the world, hoping God's going to fulfill his promises through those, and and what we find are some disappointing results. Relationships are a a really great example of this, again, mainly because there's a lot of statistical data to back it up. There's a common pattern in our culture today for how a romantic relationship is supposed to progress. You date, you move in together, you get engaged, you get married. That's the common practice, that's the common pattern, evidenced by the fact that about 70% of marriages today were preceded with cohabitation, whether you're religious or unreligious, 70%. So that's, that's how our world does things. And if that's how the world does things, well, maybe that's how God's going to do things too. And on the surface, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because how else are you going to get to really know that person and if you're compatible or not? Or or how are you going to know if you really can deal with the stressors and the the things that irk you about everyday life, like whether they fold the towels in thirds or in quarters, or if they put the toilet paper over the roll or under the roll? How are you going to figure that stuff out unless you live together? How, How are you going to figure out if you can even be in the same room as this person for multiple hours at a time unless you move in together? On the surface, it kind of makes a lot of sense. But it's the darndest thing, because study after study, year after year, continues to demonstrate the same result. Moving in together before you're married does not increase the likelihood of a successful marriage. It actually increases the likelihood of divorce, sometimes by as much as 15%. The world's ways don't serve God's ends. They don't achieve the blessing that He hopes and intends for us. The opposite, though, is also kind of interesting if you look at it. Study after study, in fact, there's a rather a large study that was conducted, or finalized rather, last year that found that religious couples who don't live together before they're married, so in other words, people that said God wants to do things his way, actually had a lower, the lowest actually, likelihood of experienced divorce out of all the couples that were surveyed during the study. And it just goes to show you that even though God's ways are a little against the grain, not really in step with cultural expectations they do actually lead more consistently to the kind of good and blessing He intends for our lives. And it's not just relationships that we see this in. We have other values that our world encourages us to, to adopt, other practices it encourages us to pursue and to live in. A lot of them have to do with immediate gratification. And there's this idea in our world that if you're happy, there must be good. And what makes us happy? Getting what we want when we want it. You take a TV for, it. this is a great example, we don't have to sit around and wait for something to come on TV anymore. We stream it. It's on demand. We want to watch a show, we turn it on, we watch that show, we pause it, we go get our snack, we come back so we don't have to miss anything. When I tell my kids that I used to have to wait for a specific time for my show to come on, and I just like held it because I didn't want to miss anything because I couldn't pause it, my oldest is just like, what kind of a dinosaur are you? Like, they can't believe, Right? We want what we want, and we want it when we want it. Immediate gratification. Now, sometimes that spills over into material things. I want these material things. Maybe I can't afford it necessarily right now, or I want to take this trip, and maybe I can't afford it, or it's not the the financially wisest decision right now, but you know what? You only live once, so treat yourself, right? Treat yourself. That's the attitude. And many people plunge themselves into this pursuit of immediate gratification through purchases. Because it makes them happy. And if it's happy, it must be good. God's ways are a little countercultural. He actually has a different way of going about things. And, and sometimes we have to say no to ourselves. Sometimes we have to deny ourselves. Sometimes the things that we want in the immediate, that we think will make us happy, maybe pursuing those aren't necessarily in our best interest. But in learning this discipline of patience, of saying no to ourselves, He cultivates a greater blessing in our lives. Sometimes that's financially. By saying no and sticking and living within our means, he cultivates a greater financial blessing down the road in this financial discipline and investments and savings and avoiding debt. Sometimes in learning to say no to ourselves, he cultivates a more gracious and grateful heart in which joy and satisfaction and contentment are not connected to, to things that are only destined to perish, break, and fade, but it's rooted in something different, something lasting. And he goes to work in our lives and shapes us and and cultivates a greater blessing when we do things his ways as opposed to the ways of the world around us. There's so many different ways in our lives that we're encouraged to perform and to to live in the standards of this world, to go with the cultural flow, thinking this must be how God's going to fill my life with good when the opposite is true many times. Having faith means trusting God. Not just when the doors close, but trusting God to walk with him and to follow him, even if it goes against the grain, even if it's a little countercultural or people think it's weird. I wish Abraham had learned this lesson, and I have a feeling he does too. Because do you notice how his story wrapped up there in verse 4? It says that Hagar conceived a child, and she began to despise her mistress. In this ancient culture, children, especially for women, sons in particular, meant honor. And you could achieve honor in other ways, but the most common was through childbearing, through having a son especially. So here is Hagar, who is a slave, and yet has a son. Here is Sarai, who is a free woman of a wealthy man, and yet has no children. There's an imbalance here in the amount of honor, right? And Hagar begins to despise her mistress because of it, to look disparagingly upon her couple verses, we find Hagar gets real sick of it. She starts to mistreat her servant, becomes a little abusive and hard on her. And now we've got this feud between these two women in this household, this tension, this unrest, continually bubbling bubbling up and boiling up every single day. And here, stuck in the middle of it, the 86-year-old Abraham. His life looks like a TLC reality show. I don't think this is the blessing he had in mind. I don't think when he you know, slept with, with, with Hagar, he thought, yes, this is absolutely how things are going to end. I think God's intention is for my life to be filled with strife and drama. I don't think that was his thought, but that is what happened, because when we try to fulfill God's purposes for him, or we pursue God's ways according to the world, or God's means ends according to the world's ways, oftentimes it doesn't work out how we imagine. Having faith means trusting God. Not just trusting him enough to believe and obey, not just trusting him even when the doors close, but trusting enough to walk through the doors he opens, even if it goes against the grain. Even if it goes against the cultural expectation. Abraham does eventually learn these lessons, by the way. The easy one and the hard one. And when he does, when they finally come together, they coalesce in what is the highlight of his life. The greatest good he has experienced. And this wonderful, beautiful lesson that he learns in that moment is one that we also can stand to learn and benefit from today. God's purposes, worked in God's ways, brings the most blessing to us and the most glory to Him. Now, that takes some faith to trust and believe that. We're talking about God's purposes, not the doors that we kick open and say, I'm going through this one, but the doors He opens God's purposes, worked in God's ways, not the expectations of our culture and how the world solves its problems, but the way that he instructs us to live and to walk. When God's purposes are fulfilled in God's ways, the end result is an immense amount of blessing for us and an immense amount of glory and praise for him. That's how Abraham's story kind of wraps up here, almost. There's another episode after this we'll get to, but this is the highlight of his life. That, that servant, Hagar, she does have her son, Ishmael, And for many, many years, Abraham believes this is the child that God promised. This is the blessed child through whom God will make me a great nation. Until one day, at the age of 99, God appears to Abraham again. And he assures him in no uncertain terms, I will give you a promised son through your wife, Sarah. Now, Abraham's no dummy. He's 99. Sarah's ninety. He does some quick math. He says, God, that's impossible. Like I, we're, we're, we're 99 and 90. We're not going to have a child. Why don't you just bless Ishmael? I mean, he's already here. This is a done deal. God says, don't worry about Ishmael. I'm going to take care of him. But I'm going to give Sarah a child, just like I said, and that's going to be the one through whom I bless you and make you a great nation. And the idea of this is so utterly ridiculous to Abraham that he literally falls over laughing at God. Now, God is not without a sense of humor. Some of us have experienced that ourselves in personal ways. So he looks at Abraham. He says, go ahead and laugh it up. I am going to give Sarah a child. And because this is all just so funny to you, Abraham, you're going to name that son Isaac, which means laughter. Abraham still keeled over laughing. He said, yeah, okay, God, whatever. And then it happens. Genesis chapter 21. Verse 1, it says, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he promised. Those are some important phrases. As he said, as he promised. God said he's going to do it, and he did it. There's reason to trust him in these moments. So Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time that God had promised him, Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. And when Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a child? Who'd have thunk it? And yet I have borne him a son in my old age. Even Sarah can't believe what's happened here. And yet here's the child. Just like God said. And in this child, in fulfilling the promise in this particular way, this couple is the most blessed. Because here is a biological, fully legitimate, indisputable heir who is a son of both Abraham and Sarah. This is a child from Sarah who brings her honor in this society. This is the ideal scenario for them. God's purposes, God's ways come together and they produce the most blessing for Abraham and Sarah. This is something that also produces an immense amount of glory to God because have you ever heard of a 90-year-old woman having a child? This is impossible. Abraham tried to fulfill God's promises through his nephew. That wasn't good enough. Anybody can do that. Abraham tried to fulfill God's promises through his illegitimate son Ishmael. Not good enough. Anybody can do that. It was up to God to fulfill his promises in a way that only he could pull off so that only he gets the praise and only he gets the glory. When God's purposes are worked in God's ways, it results in the most amount of blessing for us, the most amount of praise for him. And we see this even today. There's a football player named Demario Davis. He's a linebacker for the New Orleans Saints. Demario is 35, 36 today. When he turned 30, the season was over, he was thinking about his career, he'd made his money, he'd played his game, he thought, I think it's time to hang up my cleats. I mean, I'm 30 years old, I'm a linebacker, I'm taking some beatings, I think maybe it's time. But, before I do, I need to pray about it, because DeMario is a man of faith, and so he went into his prayer closet, and he earnestly pursued what the Lord's thoughts and direction were. And he said, God, if you open a door, I'll go through it, but otherwise I think I'm going to hang it up. Well, God did open a door in the saints, and Demario thought, you know, I said, if you open the door, I'm going to go through it. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. In fact, it kind of goes against the grain of what people expect, because linebackers, they peak around age 26, whatever season they're in. Their bodies are primed, they're ideal. After that, it's pretty much all downhill. He's 30. He didn't have a whole lot of reason to expect a lot to come out of this, but he said, if God opens the door, I'm going to go through it, and so in faith, he stepped through And DeMario Davis has had the best five seasons of his career since then. Not just like subjectively, by the numbers, he's crushing it. He was immensely blessed because God opened a door and he went through it. But it's far more than that. Because DeMario has always desired his career to be more about more than just a game. He wanted it to be a platform for good, a platform that worked God's will in this world. And in the last five years, God has received an immense amount of glory and good work has been done because this guy in faith went through this door. He's been able to raise a lot of money for a charity he founded that supplies children with educational opportunities and resources. He's been able to go to the southern border and distribute supplies and care packages to refugees coming across. He's been able to sit down with the commissioner of the NFL and a a team of, of you know, big wigs, and help them navigate the racial tension and the social justice issues of the last several seasons. He's been able, here's a crazy story. So, he was at a preseason warm up. He had this headband on, and it said, Man of God. And I'm not sure why, but he received a fine for wearing that. And he was able to take all that negative press and flip it around and turn it into a charity fundraiser that raised an immense amount of money for a children's hospital in his home state of Mississippi. Here's an immense amount of good that's happening. God is being praised, he's being glorified, good work is happening in his name because here's a man who said, if God opens the door, I'm going to walk through it. Even if it doesn't make sense, I'm going to go through this door. When God's purposes are worked in God's ways, we receive the most blessing and he receives the most glory and praise. We see that in the story of DeMario Davis. We see that in the story of Abraham and Sarah. We even see that in the story of the Gospel. This was not a story that people expected. Like nobody expected God to put on flesh and make his dwelling among us. That wasn't on their radar. Nobody expected that God's chosen one would suffer and die. That's not what was supposed to happen in the cultural expectation. Nobody expected that God would set aside the law or fulfill the law and say, you can be saved through my grace, through your faith. In fact, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. The whole world. No matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done, you can be mine, part of my people, and be blessed. Nobody saw this coming. In fact, when Jesus died on the cross, everybody, including his closest disciples, just assumed that that door had closed. But because that door closed, God was able to open up a tomb And you and I have been immeasurably blessed by what he did through the work of Jesus. Unexpected as it was. He has been greatly glorified in an unparalleled way by what happened on that Easter Sunday when Christ was raised back to life. Only he could pull that off. Only he gets the glory for that. This is God's MO. When his purposes are worked in his ways, it results in the most blessing in our lives and the most glory and praise for him. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, will I trust that principle and that truth? When the doors start to close, those promising opportunities disappear, will I have the faith, will I trust God that He knows what He's doing? Whenever I'm going through life and I'm trying to figure out how to move forward and solve problems and make my way through difficulties, Will I trust that his ways, weird and against the grain as they may be, are actually the best ways to walk and to live? Will I trust? When I hear these messages about the gospel, about God's good intention for my life demonstrated in Jesus, when I hear that that I can be forgiven no matter what I've done, that there is hope and a future for me despite what the past may have been, will I really trust and believe that? Because if you can, if you can trust and have that faith, it will result in an immense amount of blessing for you and an unparalleled praise for the God who calls you and leads you and guides you and yearns for you to just have some faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your consistency. We see it throughout the story of Scripture. You make a promise and you keep it. You spoke to Sarah. You said you will have a child and he was delivered. You spoke to Abraham you said, I will make you into a great nation and all peoples will be blessed through you. And from his line came Jesus, through whom we are blessed with the gift of salvation and eternal life. You made a promise in Christ that if we put our faith in him, you will wash away our sins and you will make us your own. And we eagerly anticipate the day when you demonstrate your faithfulness yet again and prove to us what he said on the cross. It is done. Father, we have faith in you. And at times, the circumstances of life shake that faith, but I pray that you would cultivate us within us a deep and, and consistent trust, not in our circumstances and not in ourselves, but a trust in you and who you are. And through that faith, lead us and guide us and give us the courage to follow. Through every door that you open, every confusing against the grain path, you may lead us down. Let us follow, trusting it is for our good and for your praise. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we move into a time of worship through communion, I want to point to the elements and focus our attention on those. In just a couple of minutes, there's going to be some people come around that distribute the emblems. There's two cups stacked on top of each other. In the bottom cup is a little wafer. It represents the, the broken body of Jesus. And in the top cup, there's some juice. It represents the blood of Jesus that was poured out on our behalf. And together they tell us the story of Jesus and his crucifixion. They point to his resurrection. They remind us of the forgiveness of sins that comes through him. It's an immensely significant thing that we do every week. But I also want to add a little more significance. I'd rather highlight some more significance. As we participate every single week, it's an opportunity to remember not just what happened back then, but what God is still doing in our lives today through the crucified Lord. Paul reminds us of this transformation that God's working in us. Book of Romans chapter six. He says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. When we in faith said yes to Jesus, when we went under the waters of baptism, we were buried in a watery grave. We were in that tomb with him. And that old us, The us that was a slave to sin and death that was estranged from God, that old us died. And when we came up out of the water, we were raised to a new life. We were born again, you might say, just as Christ was raised up out of that tomb. And this new life is lived for him. And it's a process, day by day. We struggle, we stumble. But day by day, through his love and through the power of his spirit, God is forming us into a heavenly kind of people. People that no longer have to say yes to the bondage of sin. People that no longer have to live in fear of the promise of death. But people who belong to Christ. People who have hope and promise of eternity. People who have the freedom to say yes to God and His will. That's the transformation that God is working in you through the power of Jesus. And as these emblems come around, I would encourage you to celebrate what he has done, what he did back then, but celebrate what he continues to do in you today and will continue to do until the day when he returns. God really is for us, really is blessing us, really does have good, good intentions for us. And those intentions are summed up, underlined, exclaimed, in Jesus and what he's done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ and for his faithfulness. We thank you for the forgiveness that comes through his name, for the new life that comes through faith in him. Jesus, we praise you for making all this possible. You have granted us this opportunity to belong to the Father, to be his children, to have this new life and this hope, to live in confidence in this life, that God is for us, whatever the circumstance may be. We just praise you for your goodness, for the gift that was, for the gift that is still coming. We, we are blessed people to be swept up in the story of your victory. So as we partake of these emblems, Father, set our hearts upon our Lord. Let us praise him for who he is, for what he's done, for what he is yet to do. And let us with faith and confidence celebrate because we have hope in Jesus. I pray these things in his name. Amen.